you'll take your Bible with you this morning, if you'll open to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're not going to read these verses just yet, so just keep your Bible open there in your lap, and we'll be looking at them in just a few minutes. And now that you're there, let's take a moment and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence. Thank you for this good number who've come on this Lord's Day. Where we really begin to see uh, post-COVID people beginning to come back. And we're so very grateful for that. And Lord, I pray that that'll continue. And not just people that used to come. I pray, Lord, that we'll continue to reach new people. Lord, there's people all over this tri-state area that need what we're teaching and what we're preaching need the ministry that we have to children and to teens and to our senior adults, to married couples and singles. And Father, I pray that you would expand our ministry, expand our reach, uh, that we can see people come to glorify you and come to see people's lives transformed by you. Now, Lord, I come to you today about a very difficult subject from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I pray, Lord, that you'll give me both compassion and boldness as I talk about these matters this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Have you ever had one of those awkward, I mean really awkward talks with somebody that made you feel pretty uncomfortable? Maybe it was something like when you had a talk with your children about sex and about sexuality or maybe you can remember when your parents talked to you about sex and sexuality and you remember that awkward feeling that you had as you were having that conversation. Well, today we've come to a section of 1 Corinthians where we've been studying now for a number of weeks that's going to feel a bit awkward. It's going to feel awkward for most of us because it deals with sexual sin in the church of Corinth. And actually, what we're going to discover over these coming weeks, this ought to get you to come back, is that at 1 Corinthians 5 and going forward for the next two or three chapters, there's a number of times that he comes back to this subject of sexuality and morality. And they're going to appear on several more occasions as we go forward. But before we get to the text today, I sort of want to give you a little bit of a historical background and give you a little understanding of that first century society. And to do that, I've got a couple of pictures, three pictures actually, two from Corinth and one from the city of Ephesus. Uh, one of them is of this mountain that's just behind, if you will, there you see it. That would be the Acropolis, if you would, of Corinth. Uh, it is the place that's called Acrocorinth. It's where the temple of Aphrodite was built on top of that mountain. The next slide, as you look at it, you're on top of that mountain and you're looking back across where Corinth would have been down that hill out to the Gulf of Corinth. You're looking at the water, the Gulf of Corinth there. And then the next slide I want you to see is a slide that doesn't come from Corinth, it comes from Ephesus. Why show me a slide from Ephesus? Because Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians from the city of Ephesus. And this is a stone outside of a building. You see a heart, you see a foot, and on the right-hand side there you see a woman's head. And this is a sign. It's the sign of a brothel. 
If you go inside the building, there is an open room that you can have many people in the open room, and then there are smaller rooms that are off of that open room. And you say, Pastor, why would you show us those particular pictures and talk about the temple of Aphrodite? Well, it's said that with the temple of Aphrodite in the city of Corinth, that there were as many as a thousand temple prostitutes that worked that temple. That number is somewhat in dispute. It may be less than that number, but it was a significant number that worked as temple prostitutes. In other words, when you think today about the city of Corinth, you have to stop and remember that that entire part of the world in the first century of which Corinth was at the very core of this immorality, you have to stop and think of the immorality that existed and that there was virtually non-existent sexual ethics in the city of Corinth. Virtually non-existent sexual ethics. It was a port city. It was a city where there was a lot of commerce, so there's people that are coming and going, and they're doing so in large numbers. You could even call the city of Corinth the Las Vegas of that time. I realize that there's good things in Las Vegas, not just bad things, but you know what I think of and what you think of when you think of Las Vegas, sin city. Maybe even in Corinth they said something like, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. And Corinth was sort of the core of a lot of this kind of profligacy, this kind of immorality, this kind of looseness of life. And it's one of the reasons when you read through your Bible, because it was in Ephesus, it was in Corinth, it was in these other cities as well. It, it was prevalent everywhere, the, the sexual immorality that existed. It is so frequent that you read about it in the Scripture, God speaking to it, the apostles speaking to it, the Scripture text speaking to the matter of immorality. It is so prevalent in the Scriptures because it was so prevalent in society. Just to give you a sampling, I want to give you just four verses that come from other passages other than 1 Corinthians to, to talk about this for just a moment. The first one is Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. And in this passage, he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, and lewdness. Now, the works of the flesh. The, the flesh in the Bible speaks of that part of us that has a propensity toward evil, toward sinfulness. And he says that propensity leads us, at least in part, toward adultery. That's a sexual relationship that violates the covenant of your marriage. Fornication is a much broader term. It's the word pornea. We get our word pornography from it. It refers to any kind of sexual immorality. That would include a homosexuality. That would include uh, the other kinds of sexuality, uh, immoral sexuality that you might think of. The word uncleanness gets even broader. It's more that internal attitude and the internal spirit. And then you get the word lewdness. I mean, it's just the most base, crass way of living your life where there's a lewdness about you. He says that's the work of the flesh. In that particular text, he's comparing the work of the Spirit of God in our lives with the work of the flesh. 
The work of the Spirit brings grace. It brings love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith or faithfulness and meekness. But the work of the flesh, well, amongst those things that the flesh can work out in us is adultery and fornication and uncleanness and lewdness. Or consider Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. Paul's writing to a local church where you just saw that brothel, the sign for that brothel. And he says, but fornication, that's the broad term, pornea, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. I wish I could say I had pastored a church where had immorality had never been named amongst us. But the truth is there is no pastor that can actually say that, not that I know of, not that I have ever met or have ever heard speak. But God intends for his church to be a place of holiness. He intends for his church to be a place of purity. Or consider 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. People are all the time saying, Pastor, what's the will of God for my life? What's the will of God for my life? Well, here it is. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, to be set apart to be set apart to God from the things of this world that you should abstain from, and here's that broad term, pornea, sexual immorality. Whatever kind it is, whatever means it is, God's will is for you to be set apart from it and not to become a part of it. Or Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. It says marriage is honorable above all in the bed. The Greek word is koite. It's a word from which we get colitis, uh, from which we get uh, the consummation of a marriage relationship, and the bed undefiled. But now listen, fornicators, that's any kind of sexual immorality outside of the marriage bond, and adulterers, those who violate the covenant of their marriage through some form of sexuality, he says, God will judge. Now, I can continue taking you through one scripture after another scripture after another, all of which speak to this very subject. In this free love context of the first century, Paul, as you're about to find out, writes a stinging rebuke to the Corinthian church because they were allowing immorality to exist in the congregation. They had actually allowed an immoral relationship between a man and a woman, to continue in their church that was so bad that even the pagan people, even the pagan people in the city of Corinth thought it was wrong. Now, you know you really got a problem when the immoral people think that you're being immoral. Now you are doubly immoral. I mean, it's unbelievable. And I want you to see as we begin here, that Paul is deeply upset by the sin of this man that's involved. Just look at chapter 5 for a moment and look at some of the phrases that he uses to address this man. In the middle of verse 2, he says that he who has done this deed, or the end of verse 3, him who has so done this deed... Or the beginning of verse 5, such a one. Or down in verse 7, using something as an illustration, the old leaven. Or in verse 8, he calls, it, he calls him old leaven, the leaven of malice and wickedness. Or down in verse 11, 
anyone named a brother. At the end of verse 11, such a person, or at the end of verse 13, the evil person. Hey, do we need to go any further? How do you think Paul feels about this man and the conduct of this man? He isn't the least bit happy about the conduct of this man in this congregation. Not the least bit happy. But let me tell you what he's even more unhappy about. More than he's unhappy with the conduct of this man in this congregation that meets every week, he's more unhappy that the church had done nothing to bring correction to the matter. Church, what are you going to do? Why aren't you doing something? This man is sitting amongst you every week in this flagrant sin, and you're not doing anything, and you're not saying anything, and you're not exercising any discipline toward this individual. Church, hey, I'm upset with the man, but I want to tell you what, I am really upset with you. What are you going to do about it? And so Paul begins to give them an outline of what he intends for them to do. I want you to look at the first three verses of chapter 5. It is actually reported. Hear the shock? It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. In other words, the immoral think this is immoral that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged. Oh, wait a minute. I thought we were not supposed to judge, lest we be judged. Hey, that's just an absolute misquote of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Because there's time for judgment. Having already judged, Paul says, as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. Now, when we finish those three verses, it raises in my mind a number of questions. Probably questions that you're thinking about as well. And I want to be a little bit academic over these next few minutes, so all you academics stay with me here. All of you that are non-academics, you can drift off for a moment. <laughs> but but I want to I go through six questions that come to my mind as I, I think about what he's saying here in these opening three verses. And the first question is this, where is this offender's father in the story? He has his father's wife, but where is the father? Well, we're not specifically told, are we? So we have to speculate. Possibly the father was deceased or had divorced his wife. But in either situation, it still meant this was an incestuous relationship. It was forbidden in the Old Testament law of the Jews. It was even forbidden in the Roman and Greek world, the law of the Roman and Greek world. And so it was still considered to be something that was immoral. It's also been suggested by some that this man may have seduced his father's wife away from him, making his sin even more egregious. You say, why would you want to seduce an older woman like that? That's not the point. 
Older men, men of older age, often married much younger women in this particular culture. And the result is that the woman may have been closer to his son's age than she was to his own age. Maybe she was, he was involved in seducing away this woman from his father. Here's another suggested possibility, and I want to read it to you because I think it's interesting. It says, the incentive for such a relationship may have been in the hope of retaining the woman's marriage dowry to her family when perhaps her husband died. It may have been hoped that the son and stepmother might have had children, thereby increasing the claim for retaining the dowry within the present family. In other words, it could have been about money. This is about protecting our money. Uh, today, you would find a similar situation where you find people that are cohabiting instead of getting married because they do not want to lose an inheritance or other financial income that would be lost if they were to marry. And you say, Pastor, surely that doesn't happen. Please get your head out of the sand. It happens all the time. It's about the money. But no matter how the relationship came about, it was always, it was always an immoral relationship. That brings me to a second question. Who is this woman involved with this man? It doesn't say that the woman was the offender's mother, but rather it says that she was his father's wife. That can only mean that she is his stepmother. But again, whether it's Old Testament law or whether it's the Roman Greek law, it was still immoral. It was still outside of the bounds of legality. In other words, this is an incestuous relationship between a man and his stepmother that is ongoing and sexual in nature. Go back to the text with me for a moment, if you will. Are you feeling uncomfortable yet? You notice at the end of verse 5 that a man, and here are the words, has his father's wife. He has, not had. This wasn't a one-night stand. This wasn't a short stint of them seeing each other. This is something that is ongoing even to the day that Paul is writing these words. It is a continuing, progressive kind of a relationship. It's ongoing and it's sexual. To have his father's wife is a euphemism for the sexual relationship of a man and a woman. It's even possible when you read that phrase that they were bound together in some kind of a legal arrangement. I've read a few who say that it's possible they were even married. But there was some kind of legal arrangement, and I can't help but think, Maybe they were just trying, especially this particular man, trying to ease his conscience about what he was doing. People today say that though they aren't legally married, they have personally exchanged vows and commitments between themselves because they aren't yet ready for a wedding ceremony. I think I'm safe in telling you this story. It's been more than 30 years ago. But I was visiting with a couple that were living together, and I wanted to know why they didn't get married. And they said, well, we're not ready for marriage yet. But then they pointed to the couch where they were sitting, and they said, 
we sat here and we made our own vows to ourselves, one to another, to ease their conscience about the sinfulness of what they were doing. But it wasn't a legal marriage. It isn't recognized by God, and it is immorality. And if you want to know what to, the, the, the historians of that day felt about incest, this kind of a relationship, Josephus, the Jewish historian, wrote this way about it. The grossest of sins and an outrageous crime. And Philo, the philosopher, Asked about, was asking about incest, and he says, what form of unholiness could be more impious than this? And yet, here he sits every Sunday. Every Sunday he sits in the congregation, and the church has done nothing about it. It's a third question. Why isn't discipline in this text also taken against the woman? This man is about to be disciplined. Why isn't discipline being taken against the woman as well? And the only thing we can conclude is that the woman wasn't part of the church and maybe not even a believer. In other words, she wasn't in their jurisdiction. If you look down a little bit further in the text down to verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my epistle, this is an earlier letter, not to keep company with sexually immoral people, Yet I certainly did not mean the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, I mean, to stay away from all of those kinds of people, it would mean that you had to go out of the world, right? But then he says, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral. You see the difference? If you profess to be a Christian and you're in the church, then the church has an obligation and a responsibility to exercise some measure of discipline towards somebody who's in this kind of egregious sin. But if you're outside of the church and you're not under the authority of the church, then you don't fall under the church's or in the church's jurisdiction. This was a church matter. This man is the man who's coming every Sunday. Apparently the woman wasn't coming. It's a church matter, and they had allowed it to continue without any action against it, and it was bringing harm to the church body, whether they recognized it or not. That brings me to question number four. How are they being proud by not dealing with this man? Do you see what he says in verse 2? And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned. How are they being proud by not dealing with this man? Well, their pride was possibly because they felt themselves gracious and magnanimous in allowing this man, man to continue in church, even though he was in his sin. Um, it would be like saying, you know, we're tolerant people. Uh, anybody can come to church, and we don't turn anybody away, and anybody's welcome to sit amongst us and be a part of us and I want you to see even the most egregious of sins that's committed in, in society around and is going on with a man in our own church. We are so tolerant. We are so tolerant of this kind of behavior. Look how understanding we are. Can you believe? That's one way in which they may have been prideful and puffed up. But there's another way. And that is that their pride may have been that this man was someone prominent in their city, 
And they didn't want to offend him because of his social status. We, we can't correct him. Do, do you know who he is? Do you understand the position he holds in this city? Do you understand the power that is in his hand? In essence, they took pride in the fact possibly that his, this important man was in their church. And we can't correct somebody like that. Today, back to the application, today this would be like saying that our church, Lewis Memorial Baptist Church, will not address any controversial moral issues out of fear of upsetting influential members in high offices of government, business, or education who are part of our community of faith and may make things difficult for us in their respective positions. Pastor, just don't say anything about it. You might offend this important man or woman, and then it'll turn around on us. Whatever the reason for being puffed up, Paul excoriates the church for doing nothing about this sinning man. <laughs> Today, people get upset because they think the church is intolerant. Are y'all looking at me? Today, people get upset because they think the church is intolerant. You're so narrow-minded. You're a bigot. You're judgmental. It's none of your business. And the list goes on of things that I and others of our congregation have heard repeatedly. You have no business addressing such a subject. You're so intolerant. However, Paul was upset that the church was being too tolerant. What an interesting contrast to modern American Christianity. Question number five, what are they supposed to do about it? This man is in sin. This man is sleeping with his stepmother. This is an ongoing relationship. It may be about money. But it's an ongoing relationship, and every week he's there. He's a part of the congregation, and the church has done nothing. They have done nothing to try to bring a, a conclusion, a stop to this kind of behavior. What are they supposed to do? Well, first of all, they should have mourned over his sin. Isn't that what it says? Verse 2, you're puffed up and have not rather mourned. I mean, do we mourn anymore over our own sin? let alone the sins of others? I can't tell you how many times I've mourned over my own sin. And as a pastor, I can't tell you how many times I've mourned over the sins of people in my congregation that I knew were on a dead-end road and they wouldn't listen to the wisdom of the man of God. They should have mourned. They should have been brokenhearted. They should have looked at this situation and said, how can this have happened in this man's life? And how can this happen in our own church? We live in this free love culture in Corinth. But we've been called out from that to live a different kind of a life. And we're not doing it. God, help us. God, forgive us. Secondly, they should have exercised church discipline by putting him out of the fellowship of believers unless and until he repents. Look at verse 4. Paul tells them what to do. 
in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together, this is a corporate thing they're doing, along with my spirit, Paul's already judged this to be a sin that needs to be dealt with, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is with his authority, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Please notice, this is, this is not vengeance. This is for the purpose of restoration that his spirit may be saved. Put him out of the church. What does it mean to put him out to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? Well, at least in part, if you look back at verse 2, the end of the verse, it says, take him away from among you. That's what it means to put him out under Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Or look down to verse 13. It says, put away from yourselves. Put away, that's what it means. There's some kind of a discipline that's going on that's going to require this man to be excommunicated from the church, to be put out of the congregation. And it goes further in verse 9. You hear what he says? Not to keep company with. Not to keep company with, again, in verse 11. And then you come down to verse 13. He says, put away from yourselves the evil person. Matter of fact, in verse 11, again, it says not even to eat with him. At the end of the verse, not even to eat with him. If you see him out socially, this man that the church has had the discipline because he refuses to repent of his sin and do what is right, and restore his own spiritual life and restore the testimony of the church in which he's involved, if you see him out after he's been disciplined by the church, don't even sit down to have a meal with him. And there's some of you that are bleeding hearts that would say, that is so incredibly cruel. Oh, bless his poor heart. But the purpose of this is remedial. It's not purely punitive. The idea is to bring him to a place of recognition that he is in sin and to bring him to repentance for the sake of restoration and to put him out into the realm of Satan. He had been out in the realm of Satan. That's where everybody lives until they know Jesus Christ, in the realm of Satan. When, they, when, when, when he was saved, when you and I are saved, we're brought under the realm or into the realm of the Almighty God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're in the church, uh, uh, something that he oversees, that he overshadows. But he's not acting like somebody who's been brought out of the darkness and into the light. He's acting like somebody who's still living in the darkness. And so he says, put him back into the darkness. And the end result of that could be his death. Ananias and Sapphira, the people who later in this book, chapter 11, partook of the Lord's Supper unworthily. Are you with me? It said some of you are sick and some of, your, or some, of, some of your loved ones have died because of it. It's putting them back into the realm where Satan can do to him what he did to Job. Putting him back into that realm where he has to feel the punishment, where he has to feel the responsibility of the sin that he has been committing and is committing so that he will come to the recognition that he will repent and return to the almighty God and do the right thing and come back into the church. He had no other church where he could go in Corinth when he was put out of this church. There's only one church in Corinth. Today, back to application. 
Today, people often leave their church to find another one that will overlook their sin and accept them into their fellowship. But that isn't the way it's supposed to work. If you're under-disciplined by a church, you're not supposed to be able to easily get into another church because you're going to cause problems there as well. That brings me to a sixth question. And why is this important? Why is this important? Well, first of all, he's defiling the body of Christ for continuing an open, blatant sinfulness. He uses an illustration in verses 6 to 8. Notice it. He's speaking to this church. He says, your glory, speaking of the church body, your plural, you body of believers, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And us Gentiles are saying, what? Well, you know what a lump of, uh, of um, dough is, don't you? I mean, I don't know if we make those things anymore. Does anybody make their own dough anymore? Leaven is that little bit of the dough that has a, a, a means of fermentation in it. And you put it into the dough and you work it in and it permeates all of the dough. And when you've used up all of the dough and baked the bread from the dough, you tear off a little piece of it and you save it back so that when you make the next, next batch of dough, you put it into that batch of dough because if you don't have that in the dough, what happens? It doesn't rise, right? When you bake it, you do bake, you do bake bread, don't you? You don't cook it, don't, right? When you bake it, it doesn't rise. You hear what he's saying? You, you leave this man in your midst and you don't deal with this man. He's like leaven in the congregation. And ultimately, that corrupts everything and everybody around them. That affects everybody around them. You say, surely my sin, listen to me, church, if you hear nothing else, you say, surely my sin could have no impact on this congregation. Oh, how wrong you would be. Think of Achan in the Old Testament, Joshua chapter 7. God tells him to conquer Jericho. You know the miraculous way in which it happened says, don't take any of the spoils from Jericho. But a man by the name of Achan didn't listen, did he? He took a garment, and he took some money, he took a bar of gold, he took it and he buried it in his tent. Nobody else knew he even had it until the next battle at Ai. Should have been an easy battle. They didn't even send the whole army. It should have been an easy battle. But instead of winning the battle, they were soundly and roundly defeated. And they come back grieving. Oh, God, what has happened? What is wrong? And they begin moving through the families until they come to the family of Achan. And Achan confesses, I have some of the spoils. Achan's sin cost his whole nation. Or think about Jonah on the other side of things. God says, Jonah, I want you to go and I want you to preach to the Ninevites. And Jonah says, nothing doing, God. I don't even like those people. After what they've done to my relatives, I'm not telling them to repent. Let them burn in hell. I'm going down to Tarshish. I'm getting the boat going to Joppa. That's exactly what he does. And he goes down into the boat, and he goes down into sleep in that boat. But they find themselves on the open water, and a storm is raging everywhere. 
The storm is raging everywhere. They have to tie around the hull of the boat because it's about to come apart. They're throwing things overboard, just trying to keep themselves afloat until they find Jonah. What does Jonah say? I am the reason for this storm that is going on. And Jonah's sin almost cost every one of those sailors. Remember what happens? They didn't want, they didn't want to, but they threw Jonah overboard. Jonah gets swallowed by the great fish. Yes, that's literally true. Swallowed by the great fish. And then the, the storm calms down, and the storm goes away. Why? Because one man's sin. You say, it doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter where I go. It doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter who I hang out with. It doesn't matter what I drink. It doesn't matter what kind of movies I'm involved in. It doesn't matter if I visit the brothel or not. It doesn't matter if I'm sleeping with somebody else other than my spouse. It doesn't matter. Yes, it does. Because you become like a little leaven in the lump that has to be purged out because it is something that corrupts the rest of the lump. He not only was defiling the body of Christ, he was, he, he's, he's damaging the testimony of Christ in his church. I mean, <laughs> even the immoral people are saying, look at the immorality in that church. Here, here's the equivalent today. People in power, in positions of power within a congregation abusing children, taking advantage of women. And people outside the world say, hmm, that's wrong. We know that's wrong. How is it they don't know that's wrong? And Paul was telling him, listen, your testimony matters and your presence there and letting it go on not only is defiling the church like leaven in that lump of dough, his presence there is harming your testimony. And can I just stop here for a moment? How much time do I have left? Oh, I got lots of time. <laughs> can, can, I just, can I just tell you something? Your testimony matters. You can't hang out at a bar drinking and say, well, it doesn't really matter. It absolutely matters. You can't hang out in the dark dinges of this world, in the darkness of this world, and say, well, it doesn't really matter. Yes, it matters. That is your testimony. But that's not just your testimony. That's the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all of the rest of us. It makes me disgusted when I read a story about a preacher taking advantage of somebody in the congregation or several somebodies in the congregation or some kind, of, uh, some kind of child molestation, it makes me disgusted. Why? Well, number one, what it does to those poor people that are being abused. Number two, what it does to the rest of the body of Christ. Your testimony matters. Hey, you ever see me at a bar? It's because I'm paying for my Coke and my piece of pie and whatever my meal is that I'm about to carry out to my house. You know, I don't belly up to the bar. I don't think Christians should even be drinking alcohol. Why? You say, doesn't the Bible allow it? Even if the Bible allows it, 
The re- reality is it's your testimony that's at stake. There's a little lady sitting down here. She's over 80. I don't know if I should say exactly what over 80. I'm riding down Route 60, and I see that she's broken down on the side of the road. This has been a number of years ago. She was younger than this then. She's riding down the road, and I see her, and I pull over, and I say, what's wrong? My car's broken down. I probably at her age should have just put her in my car and taken her with me, but I didn't. I said, I'll send you some help. Really what I should have done was given you the keys to my car, and I stayed there with the broken down car, and she's laughing at me. (laughs) Probably should have given the keys to my car and stayed there with the broken down car. You say, Pastor, you are are such a fuddy-duddy. I don't ride with another woman from my office to the student ministry building. Why? Because I have a testimony. I I want my testimony to be clean. Listen, I have enough problem keeping it clean without intentionally causing problems to it. Our testimony matters. And this man is damaging the testimony of Christ and his church. Number three, it's destroying his own life. It's destroying his own life. The wages of sin is, what's the next word? It's death. It can be the, listen to me, it can be the death to your marriage. It can be the death to your children's morality. It can be the death of your spiritual fellowship with the Almighty God. It can be the death of of a sense of right and wrong. It can be a death of conscience where you you have no shame at anything anymore. All kinds of death can occur. It's important because it was defiling the body of Christ. It's important because it was damaging the testimony of Christ in his church. It was important because he was, it was destroying his own life in the process. So what are the lessons that we learn? Are you all still with me? See the big crowd today? I guess next week all five of us will meet together. <laughs> lessons to learn today, number one, is just two. Follow with me. Churches, write it down, churches cannot ignore flagrant sinfulness. Churches cannot ignore flagrant sinfulness. I was told about a church in Ohio that placed a large billboard that said, Come to our church because homosexuality is a gift from God and we want you to celebrate your gift. You can drive around our own area and you'll find churches displaying a rainbow-colored flag or rainbow-colored decoration. And I would love to believe that what that means is they know that God's not going to ever punish this earth again by bringing a worldwide flood. But I know that it means something altogether different. Unfortunately, churches cannot ignore flagrant sinfulness. Just listen to me. I'm, I'm coming to the close here. Just listen to me. There's none of us that are sinless that are sitting in this service today. If coming to church requires sinlessness, then we won't have any more services after this one. 
1 John 1, 8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This instruction that I'm talking about is not about our sinfulness that disturbs us and causes us to mourn and we're seeking to overcome. The kind of instruction here is about a sinfulness that's in the church and in a life that you cannot ignore because it's flagrant, it's unapologetic, it's egregious, it's sinful, and it's out and it's open. And it's operating in unrepentant arrogance. Churches cannot ignore flagrant sinfulness. Now, I'll be honest with you. I've been the pastor of one church, one, one church and only one church for a long time, so everything that hadn't been done right falls on me. I have to answer to God for it. That scares me to death. I've not always handled these immoral situations well in our own congregation. Sometimes I was too compassionate and sometimes I was too stern. But when you put a pastor in those kind of situations, it's, it's tough. You love people and you want to lead people, but you cannot leave them in their sinfulness. Churches cannot ignore flagrant sinfulness. So if you're a politician, you're an educator, you're a business person, and my stand on certain moral issues is going to cause you political or business or educational problems, maybe this is not the church for you. Because I don't believe we can leave open rebellion against God unaddressed. Number two, lastly, Christians cannot indulge, Christians cannot indulge prurient interest. Prurient interests. If you don't know what prurient it means, it means arousing or appealing to an inordinate interest in sex. I, I guess you know this, and I'm, I'm sure that I'm speaking to the choir here. I mean by that, everybody knows this. You're already on the inside knowing this. Sexual temptation is everywhere. And it takes a commitment to maintain purity of heart and mind. Your children know more about sex than I did till I was in my middle 20s. And they've lost their innocence in the process. They can get it on their phone. They watch it through the streaming services that you have. You take them to the movies that include the sexuality and the nudity. You're exposing not only yourself, you're exposing your children in the process. Do you understand that Christians cannot indulge prurient interests? You say, well, I just, I like it. I just, yeah, that's the problem. That's what gets you in trouble. James says, but each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, now listen to me, it brings forth death. Or listen to the words of Solomon. You know, Solomon was the wisest man in the world who became a fool. 
He wrote some of the most incredible things in the book of Proverbs that I wish every person would read every single day, a proverb a day. Just learn what Proverbs says, what Solomon said, the wisdom that he imparts. He has a lot to say in those opening chapters about morality. And then he goes and becomes the immoral man that he was. Unbelievable. Listen to his words. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. Wow. You say, well, surely just some off-color jokes about sexuality is not a big deal. That's lewdness. That's uncleanness. That's the works of the flesh. Well, surely just looking at pictures and being online and having magazines. Remember when sexuality, you had to get it from behind the counter and it was wrapped in a package? You had to be a certain age to even access it? Am I that, the only one that old? <laughs> Remember that? Today it's out in front of everybody. It's in the news. It's on TV. It's, hey, listen. Things like Bachelor and some of these other reality TV shows. Let's just put a camera and let's watch how much let's watch how much immorality we can see. I'm making friends and influences people right now, aren't I? <laughs> I tell you what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to be your pastor that says, look, the end result of that is that you're not innocent and it brings death. And it might not be physical death. It may be the death of other kinds, but you don't want to mess your life up that way. Biblical morality is so important to learn for ourselves and it's equally important to teach our children. Sexual immorality is deadly. It is like a python. It's deadly. <laughs> I'm thinking, I just came to my mind, you know, if I were to commit some kind of sexual immorality, I don't have to worry about divorce. Mary will kill me. <laughs> sexual immorality is deadly. It's like a python. It can strangle you to death. You say, why? Why a python? Well, just, just listen. This is a news article from a city just north of Orlando, 2011. On August 24th, 2011... Florida Python owners, Jaron Hare and her boyfriend, Charles Darnell, they're living together, were each sentenced to 12 years in prison because their 8-foot, 5-inch python snake escaped from its cage and strangled Hare's 2-year-old daughter. A sobbing, caller from, a sobbing caller from the house screamed to a 911 dispatcher in a recording, The baby's dead! Our stupid snake got out in the middle of the night and strangled the baby! Darnell told investigators that he had put the snake in a bag inside its aquarium on Tuesday night, but when he woke up on Wednesday morning, he said the snake was gone. He found it wrapped around the girl in her crib. During the trial, Assistant State Attorney Pete Magrino showed the jury two photos of Shanina, that's her name, if I said it right, one where she was smiling, a happy child, and another showing her lifeless body with bite marks on her face. He pointed at the couple and argued to the jury that the snake is not at fault in this case. It's a wild animal. The responsibility for the death of that child is those defendants right there. 
A reptile expert testified that even the largest person, that means me, even the largest person can be overpowered by a python. So what are you telling me? You may think you can handle your illicit sexual desires and play on the edges of immorality, but you better know that there will be a price to pay, and it may be in the lives of your children and your grandchildren. Now look, you're going to learn in chapter, uh, chapter 7 here, 6 and 7, sexuality is a great thing. It's a gift from God as long as it's used in its proper way. But outside of what God says, it is deadly. It is deadly. Now you say, Pastor, you're going to leave me sort of depressed here today because I'm already guilty. Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, there's a passage there that talks about a man that the church at Corinth is supposed to forgive. The old commentators on this particular passage say that that's a reference to this man we're talking about. Newer commentators say, no, that's not the man. That was somebody else that was opposing Paul. But either way, it shows that the church had a forgiving heart. And they were willing, a repentant person, they were willing to bring them back in and love them and help them. Listen to me. I want you to understand that God will forgive your sins if you acknowledge them. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The church is ready to welcome you back in and say, we're glad you're home. We're here to love you and we're here to help you. You don't have to live with a guilty conscience and the shame of how you've been acting and behaving. You can be forgiven and you can come home. And the Lord will receive you and renew the fellowship with you. Isn't that great news? Because while my sin might not be that of sexual immorality, I have other sins of which I am ashamed at times that I am so thankful for the forgiveness of God and that he doesn't write me off and disown me as his child. Sort of an awkward conversation, isn't it? Maybe one of the most important conversations you've had on Sunday morning for a while. And there's more to come.